We know that too many young men in our community continue to make bad choices. And I have to say, growing up, I made quite a few myself. Sometimes I wrote off my own failings as just as another example of the world trying to keep a black man down. I had a tendency sometimes to make excuses for me not doing the right thing. Nobody cares how tough your upbringing was. Nobody cares if you suffered some discrimination. So you just heard Barack Obama speaking to Morehouse graduates in 2013. And I think what he's saying is a perfect example of what colorblind racism looks like in 2020 and I think for the next couple of decades honestly and I'll come back more to this quote because I think it really hits the mark with what colorblind racism is so I thought about this project because of a conversation we had in class and I thought it was interesting because someone said that they thought that colorblind racism was not as bad as it was in 2013, in the early 2000s. But my immediate reaction was that it was actually, at best, the same. And at worst, um, it had even gotten, like, even increased more into our the American society. This project is really focused on colorblind racism, the Democratic Party, whether it exists or not. And then also, if it does exist... And how do African-American groups navigate through the colorblind racism? So first, we're going to talk about colorblind racism. What is it? The first thing is that Bona Silva, who is a professor at Duke, has the central frames of what encompasses colorblind racism. So the first frame is abstract liberalism. So this uses ideas associated with equal opportunity, choice, individualism, when trying to explain racial matters. And this allows white people to appear reasonable when arguments around race come up because they can argue that affirmative action and certain welfare reforms gives people an unfair advantage, right? Because the part of the like ideology is that you, an American, are supposed to do it on your own, but also whatever you get is because of your individual actions. So if an outside force is helping you, then that's unfair to people it's not helping. So then the second frame is naturalization. It allows white people to explain away racial phenomenon by suggesting they are natural occurrences. And the perfect example for this is housing segregation and like segregation of you know people and communities so we all know that segregation is still going on and that there is actually you know people don't want to necessarily live in their own groups like that's the conception is like oh well the reason why black people and white people aren't living closer together or in the same communities it's because black people don't want to do that right um they 
tend to want to live with other black people. But that's actually really um, false. So there was an audit done in two, 2000s focused on um, racial practices in housing. And it showed that a lot of applicants, black and Latinos, were denied for when they made housing requests for like apartments, you know, to buy houses. And this happened 35 to 75% of the time. And this was like across the country. So this is something that's going on all over the place. There are also studies that show that black people are not shown certain apartments or when they're looking to buy houses or rent, they are steered to other communities. And so even if they originally were saying, oh, I want to be in that community and it was a majority white community, a realtor would actually show them houses that in communities that had more black people in it instead. So this is all happening. So for people to say it's a natural occurrence, it's just simply not looking at the evidence. So then the third frame is cultural racism. It relies on culturally based arguments that rely that are about you know having traits that are inherent to a certain group right so a common one for black people is that black people have so many babies right like they're having so many babies um, they're choosing to do that right so then they can get on welfare all that is building on it and then the fourth frame is minimization so this one is that it is no longer, race is no longer a central factor affecting minorities' life chances. So this is exactly what Obama was hitting, that you cannot use racism as excuse, that if you're discriminated against, no one cares, right? But see, that's the problem, right? If you can still acknowledge that people could still be facing discrimination, then realize that's not just going to end in a small place like oh maybe someone follows you around the store and I think the sentiment he was putting Obama was putting out there is really dangerous because it also allows people to believe police brutality is such a small thing that it's not systemic because if you can just say race is not really a big factor then you can also say oh well that cop is just one cop well clearly it's more than one cop at this point so there's something larger that you need to address and always with this fourth frame you always people's reactions to it is well you're playing the race card right that minimizes how people feel it minimizes that it's actually a serious issue that needs to be addressed that's the definition that we're working with while we're thinking about this it's really anything not over racism it's kind of that's how broad it is and that's how broad i took it when i was talking to um, the organizations that we're gonna, I'm gonna introduce later. Although colorblind racism is an interesting topic, I was more interested right in colorblind racism within the Democratic Party. It's, there wasn't a lot of research actually on colorblind racism within the Democratic Party because one, colorblind racism is a new term, but also because I think most people focus on colorblind racism in the Republican Party because they are often using the coded language they're often, you know, denying that racism still exists, right? So we focus more on that party instead of the Democratic Party. But it's also because on paper, 
white Democrats, Democrats as a whole, seem to be better on race than most people. So there was a 538 poll done in the summer that said white Democrats were 64 more likely than white Republicans, 15%, to say that the country hasn't gone far enough to address racial inequality. And then in the same article, it said that 8 in 10 white Democrats versus 40% white Republicans say legacy of slavery still impacts black people's positions today. With those numbers, you'd think this party would not have an issue on race. They'd be perfectly fine. No, they still have problems. And even the article I read talking about this said that people should really be suspicious of these polls at this point because they know the right answer, right? Like white Democrats know that you probably should say that the legacy of slavery still impacts people today, whether they believe that or not. And even if they do believe it, we've now created a culture that you just have to say it. You don't actually have to do anything behind it. So my argument is that there's a ton of colorblind racism still in the Democratic Party. And I think one of the ways you can still see it is through the language. In a speech that Joe Biden uh, presented right before the election, um, the battle for the soul of America, he says the words law and order. And I think for most people, those words would mean absolutely nothing. But I feel like as a black person, when he said that, I was immediately angered because that phrase has meant always, though, okay, we're going to be tougher on black people, tougher on Latinx, tougher on anyone who's brown. So, and that's code of language has always signaled that through since Nixon, Reagan, they still use words like that to describe, you know, what's going on in the, in the country. And then also white Democrats in those same polls that I mentioned in the 538 poll, they're still largely opposed to more aggressive methods in areas like education. If you ask them, hey, a way we can fix schools is actually busing. Like if we bus people to different schools and they're still massively against that, they're still massively against wealth distribution, right? And the poll, it said they would tax, but if you say, hey, we'll tax you and then we also will give the money to another community, their support goes down dramatically, even though that would severely fix a lot of inequality in the education system. And then, and someone I talked to actually, who will I'll mention more in depth later, is a representative from the community defense of East Tennessee, Imani. I think she perfectly hit on that. That she said, "Believer in action." Mm-hmm. So until I see it, I, it, it, it sounds good. They're talking good, but until I actually see it put forth, I'm I don't I don't believe it. You can say you're gonna do this, you can say you're gonna do that, you can say that you're concerned about, you know, how COVID is disproportionately affecting um people of color and you can say how you're concerned about, you know, how all the disparities. You can say that, but I need to see it. 
Uh, <laughs> I, need, I need to see action in all aspects, you know, education, health, criminal justice, like everywhere, housing, loans, fin- poverty. I need, I need to see it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't, I don't believe it. <laughs> and so I massively agreed with her when she said that you needed to sacrifice something. Cause I do think it's going to take that. And so if white Democrats are never willing to take that, then I agree I don't normally take them seriously at all. And also you have two examples that I think was actually really crucial for me to really say that I think colorblind racism still exists in the Democratic Party. So Megan Burke in 2017 published an article Racing Left and Right, Colorblind Racism, Dominance Across the U.S. Political Spectrum. And she talks about in this that she goes to an area where she knows there will be like a word racism. She expects it. But then she also goes to progressive liberal like area of Chicago. And she talks to people and interviews them. And what she finds is they also have coded racism in their language. So yeah, and Adam, a white man in liberal Chicago, right, is saying about and he says this about you know his community involvement in and where he lives and so he says i mean we sit on our porches at night and if somebody would just lauder in the street or they didn't look like they belonged in the neighborhood and they were talking too loud like i remember when i some teenagers were cussing using foul language so i called the police you know it was just that constant pounding and even as the author notes right he doesn't he sidesteps ever mentioning race which is always an indicator that the person's probably black but it's really hard to as the um, author says it's hard to imagine that you know race isn't a marker in this neighborhood because it's still a pretty white neighborhood even though it's somewhat diverse it's still quite segregated and then also in Bonasilva talks about how in his article how like he interviews people in this university at NU and how one person, a university where, like, you normally at colleges, you're more liberal, although he can't guarantee this. When he, in his uh, book, he doesn't ask people for their political party identification. One person says, Lynn, an MU student says, okay, it was, it's terrible, but, but what do you call a car full of and where is driving off a cliff? Interviews, like, what? Lynn, a good beginning, and says that these types of jokes are normal, that sentiment is normal on campuses, which we all know today is very much true as well. So that's the that's the case. And so all of these ways, right, not being aggressive enough, coded language, really emphasize what colorblind racism is, but also shows like in the Democratic Party, it's actually still pretty prevalent. But also another indication, I think, for Democrats also realize, right, that they have this problem. I don't think they're shocked by this. If you ask someone who's, you know, higher up in the Democratic Party. And so I think often a way that Democrats actually try to push back, because the image that they might be colorblind, is that they put black faces in high places as Yumanji who was someone I talked to who's part of the city council movement 
And I actually thought it was interesting that all four of my interviewers brought this up. And so what you hear now is just quick snippets of how they felt about, you know, Harris being in her position and just the notion of putting someone who, because they're black into these high places as kind of a, you know, way to defend the Democratic Party and some of the things that they can do that are really problematic. Yeah this choice that we had this election uh, season out from the standpoint I was coming from, I wasn't too happy um, at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great that history is being made, but I feel like there, there needs to be reparations made. celebrating about the Biden-Harris victory. To me, as symbolism, symbolic, especially when you look at both of their political record, how they got to that point, a lot of them, they both got to that point by uh, locking up and oppressing black people. But, you know, when the rest of the world was holding his breath trying to figure out who president was, for me, it didn't matter. It was like our agendas are still the same because Joe Biden ain't set a black agenda yet. VP Harris, who's a black woman, there's an example, has not had a black agenda yet. You know what I'm saying? Where European Americans want to keep power all the time, regardless of whatever, or place African-Americans in positions, or Latinos, or women, or wherever, to still maintain power, but to have a uh, black face in high places. Okay, so I think, so what they said about that was really interesting, and I actually really agree. I think at this point, I'm not encouraged when I see a black person put in a high place, because I really just see it as a way to protect the party and to prove that it's the party's not colorblind. But also, I think, too, at this point, these positions are just being used to say that race, racism is not as big a part of our society anymore. And I think it plays into that. Like Obama and now Harris, all this will say, how can society, the society still be pretty racist? When in fact, oh, we have a black woman as a VP. And I think at this point, that's all it's going to be used for. So I'm not very optimistic about this. So I want to move towards, now that we've established, okay, there's colorblind racism within the Democratic Party. Now I want to focus on the, the black or focus organizations and how they navigate through it. So actually recently, the NAACP and Joe Biden were having a conversation and they were talking about potentially Joe Biden using executive orders to get things done so that we c they could be pushing forward on the issue of, you know, police brutality at large, the criminal justice system. And so they wanted him to use certain executive orders so that they could just get it done without Congress. And his response to that was shocking to a lot of people. And I think it gives the perfect example of how the Democratic Party interacts with um, black-focused organizations and how black organizations, what they have to deal with. So that's what you'll be listening to. One now. of the things I'd be concerned about, just as it was pointed out to me that you wanted me to be concerned, Derek, I think it was you said it, about, you know, uh, um, uh, dealing with uh, Vilsack as uh in uh in terms of a ter of uh, agriculture well first of all you can learn more about vilsack's record but my point is this 
I don't think we should make that a big issue going into before January 5th when the election takes place down in, in, uh, um, uh, in uh, Georgia. But I also don't think we should get too far ahead of ourselves on dealing with police reform in that because they've already labeled us as being defund the police. Anything we put forward in terms of the organizational structure to change policing, which I promise you will occur, promise you. Just think to yourself and give me advice whether we should do that before January 5th, because that's how they beat the living hell out of us across the country, saying that we're talking about defunding the police. We're not. We're talking about holding them accountable. I just raise it with you to think about. How much do we push between now and January 5th? We need those two seats about police reform, but I guarantee you there will be a full-blown commission. I guarantee you it's a major, major, major element. And as Reverend Al said, I was, I was a pain in the ass to everybody except him when we did the commission before. I didn't think we went far enough. We can go very far. It matters how we do it. I think it matters how we do it. As I learned early on, it's all right to question your opponents, uh, and you're not my opponents, any of you, it's always, always appropriate to question your opponent's judgment. It's never appropriate to question their motive, even if you know it. Because once you question their motive, you're done. You can't get anything done. By the way, let's talk about building highways. So what these organizations had to do with is not unique, actually. And I think the issues that the Democratic Party and these groups have with each other is often the Democratic Party does not want to go as fast as the organizations, but also that not often, sometimes the Democratic Party will fear that race is going to hurt them. They will caution people of using race, and even if that's their base, and so having to deal with someone not always wanting to wanting to remove remove the issue from race is difficult because you're black and i actually think all these issues of coded language of not go, um not being aggressive and all these issues that democratic party has they're issues that local democratic party sections have as well and a perfect example to follow that joe biden clip is actually a clip a discussion of what I had with the community defense of East Tennessee. And Imani was had a very similar inter- interaction, so um, I'll let her take it away. I'm not going to say names. Just talking to a representative um, about what we considered, or I'm not going to say the, um, the law, because uh, we considered it a racist law. And... I was specifically told not to talk about black people, not to talk about women, not to talk about poor people because they don't care. I was specifically told to talk in terms of money, how changing this would save them money or make them money. Um, I was I was really upset, <laughs> you know. I mean, like it was just like, don't say that, you know. And to know 
that I can't say to someone who's in a position of so-called power in this country that, you know, you should care about this because of this, this, and this, and it, and it will not affect them, that I have to talk in only terms that they care about. Was It was degrading. It was, um, I don't even know how to explain it. So, um, but in order to get it something done, you know. Okay, so I remember we were talking about that, and she was upset that that happened to her, and she really thought it was just dehumanizing that someone would ask her to, you know, stop talking about race or having not having race center the argument when that's really a primary focus of her organization. It's not the only, but you know, she's trying to really help black people in the area, and that this isn't unique. That the Democratic Party just really asked black people to kind of leave their race out of it and that's just another I feel like way to see that color racism is still in this party because put making pushing someone to do that when race is still a huge factor in especially criminal justice system the inequality you see in education is like hurting the community so there's four organizations that I talked to and so the first organization is the Community Defense of East Tennessee. It's a grassroots organization that helps create a space for people and offers the support to navigate the criminal justice system. It's not a legal can- clinic and it's not a political action committee. It's just simply a, a nonprofit organization. So the second organization I spoke to with Black Coffee Justice, and it's pushing for a black agenda. They endorse candidates. They actually recently they had endorsed Marquita Bradshaw, who ran as a Democrat in Tennessee for the Senate race. And the third organization was UUNIK Academy, and that stands for the Five Principles of Kwanzaa. They offer tutoring service, and their aim is to decrease the gap between black students and white students and you know the reading levels their math le- levels because that's actually really a problem a big problem in Tennessee and the fourth organization I talked to was city council movement their political organization they started in 2013 to put people on the city, city council who cared about their interests and I think there are three categories I would normally put organizations when they are trying to navigate through the colorblind racism in the Democratic Party. The first category would really be someone who completely changes their idea after being in interaction with the Democratic Party. And I feel like normally it's because they either think their idea has no chance, Democrats say <laughs> it has no chance, or they think for some reason that the other way is just a better way to go about it. And an example that I have is that it would be someone who's saying defund the police and then time goes by and they're interacting with the party and they decide to go from like let's reform the police and possibly give them money for training and everything. So I feel like that's completely different than what they were going for before but for whatever reason they're saying the second one now. So the second one you have like two, two and a half of the organizations I talked about 
fit in this category. This category is about organizations that adjust their tone or message to navigate through the party. As we talked about before, Imani, a part of the Community Defense of East Tennessee, has had to change her tone, and that has been suggested to her. And she seemed to not like it, but decided to go about it. And the other organization that really fits in this is UUNIK Academy. And he actually was talking about this with me, and I'll let him go further. You, you being black in America, you know this, uh, you have to be multilingual. Multi, you got to be fluid. You know, you got to be like, if you're talking to a particular audience, a white audience, you have to be careful because, see, it's all about white uh, fragility. White people is fragile. And so when you coming at them, you can't come up with them just straight to the chaser, you know, because I do. And I thought that he was right that, you know, as a black person, you know, you tone police yourself like constantly. And then I actually thought it was interesting because that really connected with what happened with the conversation with Joe Biden in NAACP is that when they were asking him, they were being so polite to him. They were like, well, you can do this. You do have the power to do this. You can do this. And I thought that was interesting because I feel like if anyone, if you had had, and I'll introduce her soon, Constance from Black Coffee Justice, she'd have been like, Joe Biden, do this or, or, or I don't support you next time. Or, you know, I am going to go to the press, right? So, but the NAACP and other, the other black organizations on the call were so respectful and were very much policing their tone. So I thought that was actually an interesting um, dynamic that was happening. And I think why these two organizations are not necessarily more willing to like tone police themselves or change their approach. It's also because both of these are not political action committees. So they're both nonprofit organizations who depend on donations. And so they can't, especially you, you NIK Academy cannot endorse anyone. That's not their tax bracket, right? That, that's not what they're doing. The most of the way they interact with the Democratic Party actually is through um, funding, right? So they need funding, and so that's a different way. But the Community Defense of East Tennessee, right, they, they can't run, particularly run their own candidates, right? They can't raise this money up, give it to candidates, and not, that's not their role. So I actually believe that they feel more compelled to work with what's already there. And what's already there is, like, pretty moderate to conservative Democrats, right? Because East Tennessee, very conservative area, county mayor is Republican. City mayor is a Democrat, but she's pretty moderate. And, you know, East Tennessee, Republican, we have Republican senators. District 2 that I'm in is has a Republican representative. So Democrat Party really isn't strong. So they're probably like, hey, we'll work with what we have. And this is what we have is moderate to conservative Democrats. So a third organization that I feel slightly fit into the second one, but not completely, is the city council movement. Yeah, yeah, there are times when you have to, uh, what you're thinking about at that particular time or your plan may have to be modified to get to where you're trying to get to. Uh, and the word compromise means, I guess, uh, giving a little and taking a little. Uh, but yeah, so there are times when you have to do that. Uh, but then also on principle, you know, and on, on various kinds of spiritual things and things that really 
uh, uh, motivate you, that really uh, drive you, that really are your bedrock, the things that actually, if you change, you are not that person that you were before you changed it. And the circumstances that happen to you after you change it are nowhere near the circumstances that you wanted to happen. So you can't give up yourself. You can't give up your soul. You can't give up who you really are to get some things done. So, yeah, I was really actually in- intrigued by the fact that he was kind of back and forth, that he'd be willing to compromise, but there's a line. And so I think with all his organizations, this was a problem, but I don't think people really know what that line is. And they don't have, they're not in the position right now or even the power to seriously be thinking, oh, we're going to have to compromise. So they're not even engaging in that right now. But I was interested and thought he should be in the second one just because he did seem more willing to compromise. Whereas in the third, this is the person category that does not change at all, will not change at all, probably not looking to compromise any soon at all. And that's Black Coffee Justice. So the person I talked to, um, her name is Constance, and we... She was very strident about how if someone does not accept, you know, this agenda, it doesn't happen. But I'll let her take the rest of the way and explain more to you. Yeah, yeah. There are times when you have to, uh, what you're thinking about at that particular time or your plan may have to be modified to get to where you're trying to get to. Uh, And the word compromise means, I guess, uh, giving a little and taking a little. Uh, But, yeah, so there are times when you have to do that. Uh, but then also on principle, you know, and on, on various kinds of spiritual things and things that really uh, uh, motivate you, that really uh, drive you, that really are your bedrock, the things that actually, if you change, you are not that person that you were before you changed it. And the circumstances that happen to you after you change it are nowhere near the circumstances that you want it to happen. So you can't give up yourself. You can't give up your soul. You can't give up who you really are to get some things done. So I thought this actually was really interesting that she was so hard on like, no, someone needs to talk about race. They have to. If they don't, I don't want anything to do with them. And I thought that was really interesting to find in East Tennessee. I didn't expect anyone to be that aggressive about not compromising on these issues of race and the black agenda. And so all of these three um, categories and these four organizations fit through back to how like Black Coffee Justice and City Council Movement are both political action committees. So they're donating. They are giving endorsing people getting people to run i feel like they both were not as pushed to change their tone or message because they could run their own candidates they were not depending on the democratic party and also in some ways i think that's even more powerful because a lot of people don't like the democratic party so if you can convince people that your ideas are great and that you'd be a good candidate for city council or if you'd be a good candidate for state representative state uh, senator rate if you can convince people of that and you're just not attached to democratic party i don't think that's always actually a con in tennessee i think they're still trying to hit some traction because i think besides the community of defense uh, of east tennessee um and the union nik organization they've been around for a while but black coffee justice city council movement they haven't been around as long so 
I still think there's time to see if this will actually be, you know, a good idea and whether they'll actually have some progress in Knoxville. And dynamic that I wanted to talk about that fits in that the co- Democratic Party is colorblind racist, but also fits in the fact that all three of these or all four of these organizations, right, are trying to navigate through this issue. And a lot of times people will try to run, they'll try to get support, and they'll put their own candidates. And what has been noticed by these organizations is that they don't always get the support of the Democratic Party. As a representative from Black Coffee Justice said that, and she was really mad that the Democratic Party did not support Marquita. And I was here, and yeah, they did not. I never received an email, and I'm on the email list for Tennessee Democrats about Marquita. I never really got mail, right? And it takes a lot of money to run a Senate campaign. And even if she would have lost, like, just a little bit more money and more effort trying to get people to come out for her would have been great and I think would have helped a great deal. But they didn't put that money into her race at all. And instead, I knew Constance was angry about this, but I agree that like they put all that money in Amy McGrath and I never... I never thought Amy McGrath would win, and maybe Marquita wouldn't have won either, but it's like who you choose to give that money to, and Kentucky's right above us, right? So why not give some of that money to Marquita instead, right? And they didn't do that at all. And as the representative from city council movement also said, that Democrats in Knoxville also have a problem when they don't want to run a race, but as soon as like a black person gets in it, they take it away, as he said. So... That's the problem also that these organizations have been having with the Democratic Party and navigating it is that they don't get the support from the Democratic Party as they should. They have to depend on their own funding. And that's really difficult. You know, if you I mean, Knoxville, uh, the black community is not, you know, as wealthy. So if you're depending on this community to fund your campaign, that's going to be really hard. If the Democratic Party would give more money, then potentially it could be um, more fruitful for them and for these um, black focus groups. All three of the different types of ways to navigate this, I don't I don't really pass a lot of judgment because I understand why different groups do it. And actually, I think maybe the person for Black Coffee Justice never tone police, but I think to a degree, I think nearly every black person tone police. So just automatically because of all of the implicit biases that work against you. But I really did like Black Coffee Justice was so unapologetic about their agenda and just that we're not going to compromise on this. That they've thought about their ideas, they think they're good, and they're going to find people who support them and they're going to support them to run. They're not going to try to work within the existing system. And I think it really reminded me of the organization Justice Democrats, right? That we're going to pick out these people or they're going to be nominated to us and we're going to help them run. And that's how we're going to do it. I think overall, that's just a better way to actually know who's on your side. Because the difficulty of like just helping anyone and endorsing anyone is that when it comes to it, when you know there's a vote and people want to end student loan debt and you've supported a good chunk of people in Congress, but now only 50 of them want to support it. Well, it's because you didn't make that a requirement of your endorsement, right? So I think having people come to you and not the other way around is 
the way to move it, especially if you want to push legislation that, you know, is going to be hard and that they're going to have to work for. But I do think adjusting your tone of message, I don't necessarily say that's always a bad thing. I would say that the problem with changing your message and your tone is that they could be trying to ignore a real issue, right? When the person said that to the representative from Community Defense of East Tennessee, when she was told, like, you shouldn't center it around race, you should instead center it around, like, you know, the money you save, well, that's a problem because then you're never going to recognize the racial inequality within the criminal justice system, right? You know, there's a lot of wealth inequality and it would save money, but even if you solve a lot of these issues, you're probably still going to have a racist system that's still going to hurt minorities. So that's also a problem is if you're adjusting your language, then that could be an issue. And the issue with, I think, with compromising, it's not, you know, the notion in of itself, but also it's just that you have to make sure that person is in good faith trying to compromise with you. Um, they could be using you for something. And I think it's just too easy to, I think, get bogged down with. Yeah, I think it's essential that they're dealing with you in good faith. And what I mean by that is I was asking uh, the representative from the city council movement about, you know, where what is that line? Because sometimes the problem is, is at this point, I think an example could be that what if you were in a compromise and you were going to say, okay, you shouldn't. You should release all nonviolent offenders, right? We talked about that. But the problem is, is that you've now created a situation where, like, you were focused on all offenders, but then because someone said, oh, you should adjust your message to nonviolent because they're the most sympathetic. Well, the problem is, it's like you're never actually going to solve mass incarceration because of that. So if you do that, then it's just like you never you're never actually going to solve your issues and someone could argue well you're just trying to do little by little and i understand that but if solving that one issue you had to kind of kill what you were saying before when you go back and say oh no i i actually mean we should really you know try to reform and try to our goal should be to release a lot of offenders including violent ones then you need to i feel like say that up front and get people to come to you and not try to fool people, not try to lie your, about your intentions and just be upfront about you want. Because I think people really do. So I think that's the best way, one, to change people's minds is just to be upfront. Because if you're always just saying nonviolent, nonviolent, nonviolent offenders, and you're never talking about violent offenders, but then no one's ever going to think they should be saved. They're going to be, those people should be in jail forever. So I think you have to be weary of altering your message with anyone at this point. This class was, you know, essentially about polarization in America. And all of these organizations, right, are also navigating through that. And what I think is interesting is, you know, what we talked about that yeah, so with polarization, I actually think that in this moment, right, everyone sees the high levels of polarization in regards to, you know, social issues, race. And the problem is, is that people really want, you know, bipartisanship. And that's fine. But, you know, 
the only time she really had peace in this country has been, you know, after we decided we're just not going to bring up race anymore, right? After, you know, the Reconstruction era, you know, before the 50s and 60s and, and in the early 2000s, right? Those are times broadly, you know, with exceptions in those years that there was like peace, but also we weren't focused on race. We were really pretending that there wasn't, you know, systemic racism. So I think that's the impulse right now is to want to go back to normal. And that's what I think some of these organizations could get into by altering the message is like realizing there are people who just want to go back to normal in that you bringing all of this up is not necessarily what they want and that I think even some of the politicians realize to go back to normal means we have to stop talking about race. The thing I want people to walk away from is that I actually genuinely do want the Democratic Party to deal with their issue of colorblind racism because I think this is a serious issue that it's had for a while and that it's not addressing. And I think they need to because I think younger black people are just not as loyal to the Democratic Party as our parents were, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. Because, right, we weren't around when the Voting Rights Act was passed and the Civil Rights Act was passed. We weren't there. We don't have the same feeling and loyalty to this party. And even before the election, that there was a, a lot of people, younger people, who were not black people who were not really wanted to vote for Joe Biden. I think a lot of them ended up doing it. But that's bad. I think that just tells me if that many people, younger black people were like, I really don't like Joe Biden, but still voted. I just think that means they hated Trump, like even more, which he was the most really overt racist president that we've had to deal with in a while. But I don't think that's always going to save the Democratic Party in the end. That if they really want to keep winning beyond this election cycle that I think they really need to tackle race they really need to deal with the colorblind racism within their ranks and I think that would make the world of difference because like you heard before the people I interviewed I think the youngest person was in like their early 30s which is crazy that all of them were like yeah not impressed <laughs> by the fact that Harris was picked I need material things I need you to pass legislation that will actually help me in my life. That's nice that she's in that position of power, but I need more. So I think that's something I feel, and I that's something a lot of black people are feeling right now, that they really just want their day-to-day lives to be better in terms of police brutality, in terms of the criminal justice system, in terms of educa- education, housing, healthcare, all areas that black people suffer from extreme discrimination. That's why I really wanted to focus on this issue that I think the unwillingness to face this issue will hurt them in the long run. Because I think at some point, as we saw, black men started leaving the Democratic Party a little bit. And I don't think that's going to stop. Because if you see that there's colorblind racism in the party and they don't want to recognize that, and you see that it is in the Republican Party, then you're just left wondering okay who do I really vote for because at the end of the day is anyone actually going to help solve police brutality criminal justice reform 
So I think most groups have decided to stay in the Democratic Party, but I don't know if that necessarily be true for voters. Thank you for listening. This was, you know, a project I really wanted to talk about, and I hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Thank you.